You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey everyone, it's Lauren here with On the NBA Beat's first interview of the season. We're excited to bring you a general season preview with special guest James Herbert, a writer for CBSSports.com. I've personally followed James's writing for a long time, so I was really interested to see what he'd say when we asked for something we don't know about him. He told us that he likes soup much more than Jeremy Lin. Anyway, here's Aaron to kick off the interview. Hey, James, it's really good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Regular season basketball is fast approaching, and you're a great guy to have on for general NBA talk. Just so much player movement in the offseason, lots of high-profile guys and some big-name coaches changing teams. I'm not going to let you say Kevin Durant joining the Warriors. Other than that, for you, what's the most compelling storyline heading into the season? Yeah, there are a lot of compelling storylines. There are a lot of exciting teams. One team I really have my eye on, I think, like most everybody on the basketball internet, is the Utah Jazz. I just think they're going to be a monster this year. Look, we, we've all... Um, I shouldn't necessarily speak for for you guys, but I think a lot of people really expected them to be that breakout team last year. Some thought it would even happen the year before they'd make it to the playoffs. But I think this is really the year that it's going to happen. They should have been a playoff team last year. They just barely missed out. And that was when they didn't really have a point guard for the whole season. Now they not only have a point guard, they have two that could both be really good. And then they went and bolstered their bench in the summer. So that storyline of their ascendance or not because i think if it doesn't work a lot of people will be talking about that too because i just think there's been so much hype around them Mm -hmm. going into this season that's one team that i want to watch like basically all of their games at the start of the season i'm really really interested in them and i i think the sort of middle of the east and middle of the west is kind of going to be a jumble um, of a bunch of sort of similarly uh, right. successful teams. And I'm one of the people that thinks the Jazz are going to be sort of above that mm-hmm. mid-tier. I think they're going to be sort of in the same zone as the teams that we've seen successful in the last few years, like up with the Spurs and the Clippers rather than down below. So I'm a bit more bullish um, than them that than I think even most like NBA hipsters are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with all the player movement, Lauren and I were looking at the teams that made it last year. And it seems like a lot of teams could go one way or another direction, depending on just really how things pan out, how new players gel with their new team. I like that you brought up the Utah Jazz. They've been a really young team for a long time. And a lot of people are wondering, when are they going to take the next step, if ever? And they've been progressively improving just very gradually. What impact do you think adding... Boris Diaw and, and uh, George Hill, who's now, you could consider him a veteran. I think he's around 30. What do you think that does with regard to adding them to the young guy? I think it's huge. I mean, the way that Boris Diaw plays fits so perfectly with what Quinn Snyder wants in Utah. I think they passed so frequently that 
it almost got sort of annoying the last couple of years. Like they pass up open looks because they put such a premium on ball movement. And Diaz obviously been over the course of his career, a guy that sometimes you want him to be a little more aggressive, but he's always thinking team first. He's one of the smartest players in the NBA. And I think the cool thing about his skill set is he can play the four. He can play back up five if the Jazz want to play small. And I think they're seen as this big team, this enormous team that plays power basketball because of Favors and Gobert. But they can put Trey Lyles and Boris Diaw there as their front court with their bench unit, and they can match up with small teams too. I think it's really all about versatility in the modern NBA, not just going small. And the Jazz have the pieces to play pretty much any way. And that, that, that's the deal when you add Diaw. That's the deal when you add Joe Johnson, who started playing some stretch four last year when in the past he was more likely to sort of be a sort of a shooting guard that could play point guard in stretches at the start of his career. That's another versatile guy. And George Hill, I think is a guy that is sort of under the radar, but is a really, really good point guard and sort of the perfect point guard for that team. We saw in Indiana, the defense that he played against Kyle Lowry in the playoffs. I went to all of those games in Toronto and the difference between the type of looks that he got later in the postseason versus in that series, I mean, it, it was night and day. Like, George Hill made his life a living hell. And the season before, when Paul George was out, he showed that he could be more of a playmaker. But I think for most of his career, he's been the secondary, tertiary ball handler on the team. And when you're starting next to Gordon Hayward and Rodney Hood, who were so skilled with the ball in their hands, you need a guy that doesn't demand the ball, that doesn't need to create shots every possession and can just hit spot up three pointers and guard multiple positions. So I think you couldn't have asked for a better fit there. And then it's also sort of a model for Dante Exum, because I think when you project him out, the sort of best case scenario of Exum is being a sort of super version of George Hill. And that that's a great guy for him to learn from there. Now that we've avoided the cliche of starting with the Warriors, we can return to them. Talk a little <laughs> bit about Durant and Golden State. I want you to react to a recent Steve Kerr quote that I thought was really interesting, where he's talking about how last year was a lot about win total and setting the record. I'll read the quote quickly. Last year, we felt like we could do both, and we were pretty close, but we couldn't pull it off. This year is more about just growing and getting better and experimenting the first couple months of the season. Just respond to that quickly for me. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because... The first part when he said we thought we could do both. I think if you went back to right early in the season last year, there wasn't a lot of talk about the Warriors actually going for it. I think there was like one radio interview where Clay Thompson said, yeah, if we're there, then why not? I think we should give it a shot. But it, it was only later in the season when it after they started off, what, 24 and one that it seemed like, OK, this, this might be realistic. But it, it took a while for Golden State to, I think, warm up to the idea. And I think. It's a problem to head into any season um, as a team that especially one that's trying to gel and trying to fit new pieces together and say, we're going to aim for having the best season of all time. Like, that's not really a healthy way to to think of this stuff. I think you have to just try to grow throughout the season and try to stay healthy and try to be prepared to win when it when it truly matters. But. I see these quotes and I, I see Draymond Green saying he doesn't even want to to break the record because it was so brutal last year. And then I look at the talent that's on the roster and I say, like, 
even if they're not aiming for it, even if their eyes are on the bigger picture, which, by the way, they said their eyes were on the bigger picture for most of last season, I think they might get close anyway. I think this group has a chance of winning 73 again, maybe even winning more just because of the way that these pieces fit together. And no, they can't be focused on it now. And they're all saying the right things right now. But if they start similar to the way that they did last year, and it's the same sort of circus, perhaps even more magnified because of the star power now, I think eventually you could start seeing players say, yeah, if it's there, we'll go for it. And and Clay Thompson already, to, to bring him up again, there was an Ethan Sherwood Strauss story on ESPN about, I don't know, three weeks ago, where he kind of quoted people in the organization all saying it's not a goal, it's not anything we're aiming for. And then right at the bottom, it's like, here's Clay saying, yeah, if it's there, why not? <laughs> and I and I think their attitude could shift to that if it ends up looking attainable, just like it did last year. Like that wasn't the plan going into last year. It certainly isn't now because of the way the finals ended. But I'm not really one of the people that subscribes to the idea that they lost the finals because they were tired, because they broke the record. I think any team is going to be exhausted that time of year, and they happen to get some injuries. Draymond Green happened to get suspended. I don't think it was because they were mentally and physically fried. I think crazy stuff happened. I think you bring up a good point there in that even if they're not trying to go for any sort of win record this season, there's a good chance they're going to be probably favored almost every game of the season except for maybe at Cleveland. Do you think there's any team in position to prevent a third straight Warriors-Cavs finals? It seems like those two teams are way ahead of the pack of their conferences. Yeah, I don't I don't see a team right now. I mean, I think once you get into a seven-game series in the playoffs, like a lot of stuff can happen. And especially depending on injuries, I think it's possible. But right now, like sitting like before the regular season has started, like if we're talking about a full strength Warriors team or a full strength Cavs team, like I just I don't see it. Like I, I could there are teams like the Spurs, the Clippers, maybe some people would argue the Jazz even could win a couple of games against the Warriors if they play incredible defense and they have a really good game plan and the Warriors go cold. I, like I, I, I could see that happening, but if the Warriors are playing at the top of their game, if they're healthy, like I just don't see how these teams are going to stop them. I don't see how they're going to get them out of rhythm when they go to that super death lineup, mega death lineup, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Now, as for the East, I mean, are the Raptors that much better than they were last year. I think there's an argument that they're slightly worse. The Celtics are certainly better than they were last year, but I'm not sure that they have the personnel to necessarily upset a team like Cleveland when it's healthy. I, I just I see these lineups that the Cavs can throw out there when they have LeBron and Kyrie playing with like J.R. Smith, Kevin Love, and, and Channing Fry. And like that is not the the sort of spacing that you'll see when you have Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and and Stephen Curry on the court next to each other. But it's sort of similar because all those guys need to be guarded on the three point line. Then when you put the ball in LeBron's hands with that much space, like as as we saw in the playoffs, like there's not that much you can do. And even though the Celtics are really physical defenders, even though Brad Stevens is a brilliant coach, it's hard for me to see them actually pulling off the upset unless Cleveland was shorthanded. So I, I know that's kind of a bummer. Um, I know most people going into a season would like to think that there's some sort of chance that we don't already know who's going to meet in the finals. But I mean, 
to me, I'm just like, all right, the finals are going to be awesome. Like, I want to, I want to see these two super teams go at it again for the third straight time. When now the Warriors have what looks like the best roster I've ever seen constructed in my whole life. Yeah, I do think that's much of the popular opinion too. Aaron and I were trying to go over the teams that could even possibly challenge the Warriors and Cavs, and we were just going through everyone. You know, you you could see them winning a few games in a series if they do everything right or yeah. If a lot of things go right for them, but just winning seven games against those two historically great teams just seems like such a tall task. You talked a lot earlier this episode about how the middle of the pack of the playoffs in both conferences actually is really jumbled. There are a lot of teams in each of the conferences that are around the same level. And you spoke a lot about the Jazz earlier, but is there any other team that you saw make a really strong improvement from last season who you expect to improve on their win total a lot? Yeah, I think Houston is one of those teams. Nobody expected them to be as bad as they were last year. They were just such a slog to watch. They, You could see that the chemistry was bad. You could see them not trying on defense. And this was after they were like a really good defensive team the year before with the same personnel. And just watching them in the preseason the way that they're spreading the floor, the way that they're pushing the pace, the way they're empowering James Harden. I think he's become a popular MVP pick going into this season for a reason. He's just got the perfect setup for him to have a huge year. And I think just based on the talent they have on that roster, there's no way they should have been as bad as they were last year. So I think they were naturally going to rebound anyway. And now you put Harden in a D'Antoni offense and you add Ryan Anderson there to stretch the floor. Like, yeah, this might still be a bad defensive team, but I think they'll for sure be one of the best offensive teams in the NBA. So I think they could end up getting home court advantage in the playoffs or being in the fifth seed. And and after what last season was, that's a significant improvement. And I, I just think the feel of that team is going to be different. Like, I, I just think people hated watching them last year. I hated watching them last year. And I think they're going to be one of the more fun league pass teams this year. So it's not just in the win column that I do think there will be a jump there. But I think more importantly, as somebody who watches the NBA every night, I I just see them as a totally different group than they were, even though they have like a few new role players, but it's not a completely different team. And on the other side, do you think there are any teams that you expect to fall out of contention or do a lot worse than they did last season? Fall out of contention. The Thunder's the only one that I'd say falling out of contention, but I still think they'll be pretty good. I still think they'll, in all likelihood, make the playoffs, probably win somewhere in the 40s and be a competent basketball team and still an athletic force to be reckoned with, with uh, Oladipo and Westbrook. But I mean, there's a huge step down when you lose a player of Durant's caliber and that'll affect them on both ends of the court. It means they won't be quite as terrifying in transition as they were before the spacing is obviously going to suffer so they'll they'll fall out and then i look at a team like chicago that almost made the playoffs last year and was looked at heading into the season like they could have been an upper echelon east team if everything broke right and and i look at them this year and i just think there's no there's no chance of that like i i, I don't see it coming together there, I don't see how it's going to work. The idea that now they're going to get Michael Carter Williams, another guard that can't shoot, that that doesn't inspire any more confidence in the Bulls. So I think even though last year was disappointing, I think they'll take another step back this season. Then they'll have to think about blowing it up at some point. 
When you look at just the landscape of the NBA right now, I'm sure that there probably are at least a couple teams that seem like they're pretty difficult to predict going into the year. Talk about just a, a one or two of those who could have something like a 15-win range where they could realistically finish at either end of the spectrum. There are a ton of teams like that. I'm actually in the middle of working on a piece about this exact subject is just kind of going through a bunch of teams and looking at what the best case scenario would be and what the worst case scenario would be. And the, I think even more so this year than in, than in years past, there's a lot of teams like that for me. Atlanta is the one that comes to mind, first of all, because I, this has been one of my favorite teams to watch in the NBA for a couple of years. That 60-win team two years ago where they had four All-Stars and when the whole starting five was named Player of the Month, that, that group just played beautiful basketball. And you see them change a little bit when Damari Carroll's taken out of the equation last year. And now with Teague and Horford gone, it's just a totally different group. And it, it doesn't have, in my opinion, the thing that made them so special, which was a chemistry, a camaraderie, and an understanding that everybody is going to play the same way on every possession. They're going to share the ball. They're going to move it. They're going to confuse defenses and make them stay locked into them on every single possession. Otherwise, somebody like Kyle Korver is going to get an open shot or Paul Millsap will get a guy in the air in the perimeter and then suddenly have a five on four opportunity and just make the right play every single time. And like, to me, like that, that team was really special, but it also was like consistently achieving in, in such a way that was like, all right, if you just add like what these players are individually, doesn't necessarily add up to a 60 win team like it was two years ago, but because of the way they played, they were able to be more than the sum of their parts. And I'm not sure that this team with Dennis Schroeder, who's a talented guy, but doesn't necessarily think the game in the same way that Jeff Teague does playing point guard. And with Dwight Howard, who in his day was an MVP candidate and now is sort of a secondary star, but he doesn't have the same range on his jump shot that Al Horford does. He doesn't have the same ability to put the ball on the floor and create. He doesn't have the same ability to pass the ball and to be a threat from everywhere on the court. I think with with so much changing, I'm not sure that it can continue overachieving in the same way. So while I still have them projected to make the playoffs, I wouldn't be stunned if they miss them. And then I say all this, and then I think, well... Mike Budenholzer is really, really good at his job. Dwight Howard is still really good at basketball. Dennis Schroeder is talented and had sort of made an argument with his play the past couple of years that he can handle more minutes. Maybe it can work. So I'm not really sure what the East is after the top three teams. I, I happen to think that the Pistons would finish fourth comfortably, but with Reggie Jackson out for the first few weeks of the season. Maybe maybe that's not even the case. So I think yeah. you look at the Hawks and you can make an argument, this is the fourth best team in the East. And then you could also go, well, what if it just doesn't work? And mm -hmm. they they lack chemistry like Dwight's team in, in Houston did last year. Maybe they have to go a totally different direction. Maybe they have to consider trading Millsap. Who really knows? And and I think right. there, there are a ton of teams like that in the East that I just don't really get. Like, I'm not really sure what the Pacers are. I'm not really sure what the Bucks are, especially with, with Middleton down. The Hornets, I, I love Steve Clifford, and I loved watching that team last year. But I think losing Lynn and Jefferson really changes the way they play offensively. So Atlanta is the, the team, that like the number one team like that. But I think... Yeah. 
what I said about them applies in general terms to most of the middle of the pack in the Eastern Conference. Like outside of those top three teams, you kind of don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, I think that's healthy as analysts to admit that you don't have everything figured out. It's it's before the year. Things could go a completely different direction, kind of like what happened to the Rockets last year. I want to respond just to um, what you said about Dennis Schroeder. Personally, I'm very excited to see what he does as a starter. I think he's going to experience some growing pains just without Teague there. Obviously, it wasn't sustainable. Teague wanted to be the guy, and those two guys couldn't coexist on the court together, and they needed to let Schroeder spread his wings. I just think there'll be some process here where he has to adjust to being the starter, where his inexperience will be quite evident. Sometimes where he's starting all 82 games should be interesting. He could make a sizable jump this year just in his points per game and assists. Now that he's getting more playing time brings me back to CJ McCollum last year. Obviously, this is an extreme example, but such a huge statistical improvement. He more than tripled his point per game average with the increased playing time he got last year. I know that that's extremely rare to make that big of a jump, but Tell me about a player in your mind that could make a sizable jump this year that uh, will be exciting to see for fans. I'm going to answer that question, but I want to respond to some of the stuff you said about Schroeder. Please please do. First, like, I think he's very similar to McCollum in the way that, like, we saw what McCollum could do the previous season in the playoffs and at the end of the season when he was given big minutes. And he essentially, that's why this time last year, everybody, including myself, was picking him to win most improved player like you could telegraph it and right. i think Schroeder's is the kind of guy where if he just does what he did but he's suddenly playing 35 minutes a game then he could run away with that award while being essentially the same player you hope for some sort of improvement in terms of being a floor general there but even if there's not like you could see him getting that award and i think yeah. the, the thing that i'm concerned about with the hawks is more than just the downgrade from teague to Schroeder, is that you had one of the best backup point guards in the NBA last year in Schroeder. And now you have Jarrett Jack, who's coming off a serious knee injury and isn't really a very hoxy player to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you might be looking at Malcolm Delaney, an unproved NBA player, unproven NBA player as your backup point guard or a sort of but not really healthy Jarrett Jack, which I think is a huge downgrade from having Schroeder much more so than the downgrade at the starting spot. Um, as for this year... There are a few players that I think with increased playing time could see their stats rise. I think Jeremy Lin is going to get all the touches that that he can handle in Brooklyn, and he'll probably be pretty much the same player that he's been. He's He might be a better shooter, though, and that could change his efficiency in a, in a, in a meaningful way. I think there's some guys last year that in the second half of the season were much better than they were at the beginning, um, whether it be because of injuries or because of more playing time or change in coaching philosophy. Zach Levine is probably the guy that stands out the most to me there because at a certain point of the year, Sam Mitchell said, okay, you can start shooting threes now. Whereas he seemed to hate even the concept of, of playing that way at the start of the year. And Levine became this incredibly efficient three point shooter and a guy that could go and get 20 every night. And I don't see any reason why he can't do that this year. And I think if Thibodeau is able to make him even an average defender, that would be an enormous improvement on that end of the court from what we've seen in years past. So I think you could be looking somewhere around midseason, Levine being 
a significantly different player than he was at the end of last year because of defensive improvement and a completely different player than he was this time last year when he was kind of inefficient, didn't guard, was still playing point guard half the time for some reason. And I I think you could see him um, and Wiggins, too. I think a lot of a lot of people are really excited to see how he does under Thibodeau. You could see both of those guys take steps in the right direction. I think statistically, if Levine gets big minutes and Thibodeau loves to give guys big minutes, then you could see him looking like an emerging star, not just this awesome dunker. Yeah, and Giannis Antetokounmpo, oh, yeah. it's not surprising that you didn't mention him because he's already really good, but just every year he just improves so much. Yeah, I mean, he's incredible. And I think for a lot of people who like have been following his career since he was a rookie, uh, you've been kind of waiting every year to see him just unleashed in the way that he was in the second half of last year where Jason Kidd just gave him the ball and said, all right, you're running the team. And that just makes the Bucks look really weird, but it's super effective because he can get to the basket so easily from the perimeter with those long strides. And he's always been a really intelligent passer. And I think the offseason signing of Matthew Dellavedova, while some people were like, oh my God, he didn't play in the last like four games of the finals. Why did he get this huge contract? Like, no, like I, I think he fits so perfectly with what the Bucks do. Sort of in, in the same way we were talking about George Hill earlier, like D- Delhi won't need the ball in his hand. He can just hit 40% of his spot up threes and help that offense in a huge way because they desperately need spacing. And he's not a guy that's going to take away from the defensive identity that they want, that they kind of gotten went away from last year. I think he'll be such a great fit next to Giannis. Giannis will continue to be the primary playmaker, the star of that team. They're hoping he'll be a star on both ends. And I think Delhi will just be kind of like a secondary playmaker on that team. And it's honestly, that that's why MCW has been expendable and is apparently going to be a Chicago Bull tomorrow. You've already talked about how new coaches like Thibodeau and Mike D'Antoni are going to change the face and the play style of their teams. There are 10 coaches who started with a new team this offseason. Who do you have the highest expectations for? And you can take that anyway, either wins or fit or player development. I'm going to go with the player development angle, and I'm going to talk about Kenny Atkinson in Brooklyn. This team and franchise was a complete mess last year. You could argue that they, they still are. I would say getting Atkinson and getting Sean Marks has really put the the franchise in the right direction. I think just I I'm in Brooklyn now and I've gone to a couple of their preseason games and they actually move the ball. Like they actually seem to have a plan. They have proper spacing when they go to their second unit and they have guys like Justin Hamilton, who is out of the league is now at the three point line spacing the floor. Brooke Lopez is firing threes away um, as he has done in preseasons past, but I think he's actually going to stick with it this time. Like, like Jeremy Lin signed in Brooklyn a because of the money, but B because Kenny Atkinson was there. He's on record saying he wouldn't have done it if not for that relationship. And he has an incredible track record of his work in Atlanta and player development, the guys that come to mind are Damari Carroll, Kent Bazemore. I mean, Lynn worked with him in New York and said he was a big part of why he had the confidence that he did during Lynn Sanity. And and I think what the Nets needed more than any team in the league was just some sense of stability and some sense of professionalism. And I think that's what this kind of new front office and coaching staff is going to bring. And yeah, the Nets, like they won 21 games last year. It it might 
be the same, like around the same win total just because the talent isn't there. But I think already you can see them playing a much more aesthetically pleasing brand of basketball. Just most people aren't going to pay attention because they're going to be really bad. Yeah, I think Luke Walton is another guy in that same vein where there's a lot of expectations for him to really try to turn the Lakers team around, bring along their young players, especially with how he coached the Warriors in the first half of the of last season. The Lakers want to put a lot of expectations on his shoulders. Do you think there are any coaches in that group who are under a lot of pressure to perform right away? Yeah, I think I think D'Antoni's under a ton of pressure. They were a disaster last year in the Rockets, as we already talked about, and they were a disaster on, on the defensive end. And now D'Antoni comes in there with this reputation as a guy who doesn't really practice defense, doesn't really care about defense. And look, if, if you talk to him, he would point to the fact that the Suns weren't actually terrible defensively. They were middle of the pack. And Sean Marion was an incredible defender for that team. And they were able to be middle of the pack despite having Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire trying to contain pick and rolls, which is just not not a good combo. So we have to be doing something, right? Like that, that That's what D'Antoni would say. So to me, he's going in there and... He's supposed to bring the fun back to that team, but I think there's also a directive that they can't be like the worst defense in basketball again. It doesn't mean they have to be above average, but I think they have the potential to be something special if they are merely average defensively um, or a little bit below average. And I think if it's around the same thing where they're like a pretty good offensive team and a, and a god-awful defensive one, then you know this is a team that has... Real expectations. They expect to be back in the playoffs. And I think there will be a lot of people questioning Houston's decision to hire Dan Tony if it fits that profile of a team that, that doesn't care about that end of the court. James, we're going to begin to wind down right now. But first, let me hit you with some rapid fire season awards questions. You can give a little bit of elaboration if you want, but we'll keep it rapid. Who's your pick for Defensive Player of the Year? I'm going with Draymond Green. Uh, I think the Warriors are going to have a top top three, top four defense. And I just think they're going to win a ton of games. And if, if they have an elite defense, win a ton of games. If the Spurs slip a little bit on defense, then, you know, it's been a close vote the last couple of years. I think there's a chance that Draymond can stop Kawhi's winning streak this year. Coach of the Year? Quinn Snyder. Look, th- this is not necessary. Like, it's not usually the award for necessarily the best coach. A lot of the time, it's the team that makes the biggest jump. Unless, of course, last year you have a, a special circumstance where um, you had to give pretty much every award to the Warriors, and maybe that'll be the case again. You'll have to give it to Kerr if they win like seventy-five games. But I just, I think the Jazz are going to make an enormous leap, and I think he will deserve a lot of the credit for that. And I think he's been quietly changing the way they play for the past few years. And this is as much a bet on his style and culture as it just is a bet on the talent that they have and them exceeding the expectations that i mean they're they're not low expectations even anymore but i I think despite the high expectations they're going to be even better than people think i just think they're going to be that good rookie of the year i'm going with Joel Embiid, and i know that he's going to have some sort of minute restriction the sixers are still discussing whether or not he's going to play in back-to-backs but 
I think even if he's playing limited minutes, like his numbers are going to be pretty good. And when people start doing the analysis and they and they look at what he's doing per 36 or his advanced stats or whatever, I, I just think he is from what I've seen in preseason and, and even just from what we all saw when he was in college and, and how people projected him, I think with Simmons missing the majority of the season or or maybe more than that, to me, Embiid should be the favorite. I think he's so much more talented than the rest of the crop. And finally, MVP. I'm going with Kevin Durant. And it, this is a tough one for me. I think a lot of people don't want to pick Warriors because you assume that Durant, Curry, Thompson, Green will sort of like split the stats and like Durant and Curry could split the vote um, if people are going to vote for Warriors. But I think from what we've seen so far, Steph wants to make life easier for Durant. And I think on offense, like Steph's numbers will probably go up in terms of assists, down in terms of scoring. And I think if Durant has a big scoring year and the Warriors do what I expect them to do, then I think he could easily win another MVP. It's been a lot of fun getting back into the basketball mode with you. You've been a really great guest. Just to do one more thing before we let you go, we're going to get a little sociological here. Talk about social activism. (laughs) In recent years, professional athletes have increasingly become more outspoken about social issues. And obviously, the ubiquity of social media now makes that outspokenness so much more visible. We're seeing now um, with Colin Kaepernick and a slew of others. From your perspective, what's gone on in the NBA in, in recent years in that area? And what's the calculus that these players weigh? Obviously, it's easier to speak out and it seems like it's less risky. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, clearly in the last few months, this has come to the forefront with what LeBron and Wade Mello and Chris Paul did at the ESPYs and all the conversation about Kaepernick since then. What interests me more than than even the the SB stuff, like I, like I like hearing from a guy like David West, who will directly talk about police brutality in in America, and I, I like hearing guys that aren't afraid and aren't necessarily weighing that calculus, like which what percentage of my fans am I going to turn off? Right, like, like what, what public opinion data and stuff. Yeah, or like or just worrying that their manager or the team PR person or somebody's going to have a conversation with them about it. Like I like when players such as David West, such as like Draymond Green, who on media day for the Warriors gave like a four minute answer when somebody asked a kind of innocuous question about um, activism and, and Kaepernick. I like it when these guys aren't afraid of speaking their minds. And I think it's easier for established players. It's definitely easier for older players who are confident mm-hmm. in their opinions. And I think it's unfair to expect everybody to, to want to, like every rookie that comes in the NBA, like a lot of people, they're not their political beliefs aren't fully formed and they shouldn't necessarily be expected to just offer up an opinion because a reporter shoves a microphone in their face. But I, I like when it happens. I like when guys aren't afraid to call it as they see it and aren't that worried about the outcome there or the pushback. So I, I think we're kind of working more toward that. And I think it's an interesting time because the NBA and the Players Association, like they know this is an issue. Um, they, they put out a joint statement a few weeks ago saying they were going to work with the Players Union to talk about how they want to discuss social issues and what sort of things they want to put together in various communities. And there hasn't actually been a lot of protests um, in the preseason. It's mostly been teams like 
linking arms during the anthem and stuff like that. And that stuff's all fine and good. I'm kind of more interested in like what's really going to happen now. Like what kind of initiatives are the, are these teams and these players in the league itself going to start now? Because the conversation clearly begun and it's, it's, it's a big thing right now, but I always like it when guys get a little bit deeper and aren't afraid to get away from platitudes. And and that's, that's why the David West stuff interests me. That's why Draymond Green's comments interested me. And, and I think in general, like it, it's kind of cool that you look at LeBron coming out and saying, I support Hillary and, and not being afraid to alienate a big percentage of his fans that are, that are Republican. And to me, that, that is a positive thing for a guy who is one of the most marketable people in the world. So I think it's kind of trending the right direction, but I mean, it's sports and people are still sometimes going to be afraid of saying what they, what they truly think. Um, And that's, that's, kind of going to be how it is the times are definitely changing adam silver is encouraging it it seems like he's been very supportive gone are the days where a guy like michael jordan is just so uncontroversial and apolitical in his statement but i really appreciate you coming on james it's been a lot of fun thanks so much for having me enjoy the season